That's what you did, all right. Puppets are very ancient entertainers. They don't just go back to the crib. They go back to the cave. I'm afraid they were beginning to show their age a little until you came along and dragged that whole squeaking box of dolls into the 20th century, into the mainstream. Big time. The Muppets, for my money, are the most original thing that ever happened on the box. Don't you agree? Come, listeners, gather round and hear what vulgar entertainments have plagued our vile jellies since last we met. There looms a bully with vows of bones to snap, a vast and lofty actor who dares to see the bard condensed, and a seafaring son of Ireland who battles with both a mighty leviathan and the wife of Jean-Michel Jarre. I am honoured to be your most humble servant, Philip Walsh. While I remain James Hall, bidding you welcome to Act 1, Scene 9 of Midnight Video. I'd been in a pub and in London and I got thrown out of it. So I was so angry I thought there was I'd get a drink probably on a train. So I got onto a train and got off when it stopped. That was Leeds. Tonight, no running in the halls. There's nothing but as a frantic nerd tries his level best to flee a beating in stylish 80s teen movie, Three O'Clock High. Who'd be arrogant enough to try a mashup with the works of Shakespeare? Orson Welles picks all of his favourite chocolates from the box as we keep our ears peeled for the chimes at midnight. And not content with remaking King Kong in 1976, infamous producer Dino De Laurentiis tries to outdo Jaws by tormenting Richard Harris and Charlotte Rampling with Orca, the killer whale. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Christopher Lee and Vincent Price if you're still alive, happy birthday to you. Who's to say he's not still alive? Is he rotting inside a corpse's shell? I hope so. (laughs) That's his style. No, you've only just uh, told me that. I didn't realise that uh, it's two titans of terror. Lee is uh, 89. Mm -hmm. I thought he was older for some reason. (laughs) Well, I think he was 80 when he did those Star Wars prequels. So I think it's him and Patrick McNee from the Avengers are Mm. pretty much contemporaries and uh, both hanging on there. And Price would have been 100. Yeah. And yet... Here we are, show nine, and we've still not covered anything featuring either of them. That might change. <gasps> You've got plans afoot. I thought I had, and then yeah. I realised that I don't. <laughs> yeah. What are we doing? All right, uh, we uh, we're, we're going to do thriller, impromptu thriller <laughs> review, <laughs> with Christopher Lee taking over Michael Jackson's dance routine. <laughs> we can only hope. Yeah. Oh man, I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, so show nine, um, we've got a lot to discuss today, so... Uh, as varied as ever, I hope. Even more varied. <laughs> Let's crack on. You can't 
guys want to follow me around for the rest of the day and then film Buddy Ravel kicking my ass? Exactly, but we're not talking schlock here. We're talking classic animals, we're talking private moments, feelings. So what do you think? No. Before the American Pie franchise barged in, nerds, jocks, angst and catchy soundtracks were regular ingredients in 80s teen movies. And in 1987, director Philip Jonu mixed them in with flashy photography from Barry Sonnenfeld and a Tangerine Dream soundtrack to create 3 O'Clock High, a hectic comedy where feeble Casey's Sayamasco inadvertently upsets towering Richard Tyson, the new kid in school whose reputation as a killing machine on a short fuse precedes him. With Casey's pummeling promise for 3pm, can he escape before the last bell rings? Bueller. 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 I don't, that was something I heard quite a lot when I was growing up. I absolutely loved Ferris Bueller. And this totally missed me by. Like, wh what's up with that? Um, yeah, it is a bit obscure, isn't it? Um, which is odd, because it's, yeah, as we said in the introduction, very slickly made, you thought it'd be better known. Yeah, I mean, I think Slick is putting it down a little bit. <laughs> I was, Damning it with faint praise. I was absolutely bowled over by the technical wizardry on display here. Yeah. Um, Camera-wise. I mean, um, who knows how we pronounce this director's name? Is it Jono or Juano? Juano. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've Joanel. looked this up. The thing he's best known for is the U2 um, tour film Rattle yeah. and Hum. So I... Pfft, I'm not sure. This is this is where it falls down a bit. I'm not sure whether it's um, uh, he who should be getting the credit for the visuals here, or Barry Sonnenfeld, who's better known. Well, he's a director in his own right and um, pretty well known for his style of photography in the Men in Black movies. Yeah. But also before that, um, the Coen Brothers, Wild Wild West, he did as well. We shouldn't forget that. Uh, wiki wiki wild wild. <laughs> Go to Wild Wild West. <laughs> Terrible Will Smith <laughs> impression there. <laughs> But uh, yeah, also his work on the Coen Brothers movies and Raising Arizona, which came to mind an awful lot while you were watching this. No, not for me. No? No. Okay. I mean, you've seen Raising Arizona? No, I haven't. All oh, right. Well, yeah, again, really, you know, camera getting up everybody's nose. Yeah. Uh, physically rather than, you know, <laughs> metaphorically. Um, but yeah, quite a, quite a standard uh, high school teen in peril kind of plot, isn't it? Um, but yeah, you'd never heard of this. It sounds so familiar, but yet when I watched it, it was totally fresh, so I probably haven't watched it. The only reason I knew it was because of the Tangerine Dream soundtrack, as we said on a much earlier show. I was a big fan of them as a kid, so when this did turn up on TV well, sometime in the 90s, I was it was very late and I didn't go out of my way to record it. So I did, this, I did have this on VHS for quite a while, um, but I did get rid of it. I mean, I watched it again for this show and I've, I've enjoyed it. But I can kind of understand why I got rid of it. Um, it's by no means a bad film, but there's not enough there to really hook you in. And well, I'll get to the point of this. The fact that it's got the slick visuals and the Tangerine Dream soundtrack and it's a teen movie. You know, which movie are we thinking about here? Um, Sorcerer? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, obviously... Uh, ris risky Business. Risky yeah, Business. Yeah. I mean, I'm a very big fan of Risky Business, but, you know, we're not reviewing that film here. But I do think this has a lot less going on in it. I don't think it's got any lofty pretensions like Risky Business, though, maybe. it's It falls more <laughs> to the John Hughes sort of uh, mm. side of things. Yeah, it's, it's more about... It's a setup. The little one, the the little one, <laughs> the little one. <laughs> it's more about like the weak versus the strong. There's yeah. a weird kind of morality tale going on here, which is mm. prevalent throughout 
uh, 80s movies you know the coming back from behind to stand their ground or to to fight their way yeah god we're getting quite into the uh, <laughs> the heart of this now because i don't think that's really there i think they've got oh. the setup of the wimpy guy and i don't think um again i'm gonna have trouble pronouncing his name Masco. um he doesn't come across he's not a very endearing character there's nothing wrong with him particularly but he he's not like someone Eddie Morrison with um, <laughs> yes I guess he does doesn't and, he and uh, Lee Evans a little bit yeah but he's got that telling thing because the 80s as we've said before is a time of uh, incredible hairstyles uh, and his he has that very just nothing's been done to it it's plastered to his head pretty much isn't it mm. there's nothing to really get me excited about his character or get me um, get me on his side because yeah the setup is just this bully is coming to school uh, there is a great opening with all of uh, the cameras passing over all these various cliques at oh, school as everyone's fantastic. everyone's discussing in a kind of Chinese whispers way what they've heard about this guy who's just been transferred to their school and you know it's inevitable what's going to happen and they make they stress the fact that um, he doesn't like being touched and has possibly was it he knifed his sports coach or something yeah <laughs> so no I mean I a bugbear I have with a lot of films is how clumsily the exposition is done. So I really love that when it was actually just putting its hand up and saying, this is exposition, but we're going to do it in a really yeah, slick it's, way. It's clever, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's great. And yeah, it's, um, I don't know if you noticed this, Yardley Smith was one of the girls. She's the voice of Lisa Simpson. Yeah, oh, she was the one little of the, one, yeah. yeah. the one with the very squeaky yes, voice. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Obviously. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it sounds like you really enjoyed this. Oh, I, ab- I absolutely love it. Ironically, there, <laughs> there's that, that I find this is the missing link between a film like California Man, which is like an early 90s uh, teen movie, which has a That's lot of That's when they defrost the caveman, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, visual yeah. gags. Like it's Brendan Fraser. Yeah. And it's then Encino Man in America, I think. In Australia, yeah. as my old yeah. housemate used to tell me all the time. And Ferris Bueller, which is the sort of... Uh, it's the be-all and end-all of like teen... Um, High school movies. It's the sort. It fell in between that because it it was the it was flashy enough, like uh, Ferris Bueller is. You know, visually it was quite outstanding. But Bueller, I do like it. Is really funny. But California Man has always made me laugh like consistently. I've, I've never seen it, so no, I should uh, it, check that out at worth, some point. It's definitely worth it. Like you say, you know, you were talking about the cliques and stuff. Mm. Is it's got all those things, elements to it, but I thought, um, see, so Jerry, the main character by Casey, <laughs> I really felt for him. I, well, yeah, it was no a horrible one, situation to be in, and that like, he's not a bad guy, and he's he had like quite a persona that sort of it kind of through a process of osmosis, it sort of seeped out as the film went on. You know, he had various scenes where they were quite surreal and odd. As you're doing oh, like, yeah. things like Ferris Bueller, you know, like the book review, um, which could, we can talk about later, yes. maybe. But I, I, I really got behind him, I, I, especially his sister as well. I thought she was quite funny. <laughs> yeah, I think that was uh, Stacey Glick. I think this is the last mm. film she made. Because um, the thing I'd say about this, I did enjoy it, but it strikes me as style over substance, which is by no means a bad thing, but it's helpful if there's something else going on here. It's almost as if they knew that they had the visuals and oh I'm going to say to some extent the soundtrack although I'll come on to that um, it's almost like well we just need the most basic kind of I feel bad for saying this but kind of Roadrunner cartoon sort of setup because um, I do think uh, Chuck Jones who did the Roadrunner cartoons is much underrated even though he's yeah, extremely yeah. popular but his ability to get story boiled down is 
It's like the guy who did the music for all that stuff as well. Yeah. Like John Zorn. John Zorn was inspired by that. Like I said, I I didn't especially relate to the main guy here, and I feel you should. And I think it's especially bad when the bully turns up, Richard Tyson, who I found a much more charismatic character. (laughs) Even though I shouldn't, my natural instinct is to see a guy like this who's like a mountain of muscle in a leather jacket with his... uh, precise kind of 80s haircut and just think god I hate this man he's going to get all the girls Uh, but I actually found him he had a sort of James Dean quality to him rather than traditionally in these kind of films the bully is a real mouth off our soul who's just making trouble this guy seemed to want to be left alone and get on with it this is probably why because I've got a bit of background with him because he was like the Richard Tyson (laughs) well no he was like the Edible sort of bad guy in Kindergarten Cop, right? Who Arnie um, was trying to like track down, well, track track down his son so that he wouldn't. So I, I already hated him. So I already had something there. So I suppose on judging the merits of the film, that's not fair because it takes you out of it. But I could. I could put a lot of hate into this character, so that was fine for me. The thing is, it's a reverse for me, because I knew him from a show you probably don't know, probably most people don't, called Hardball. There was an, a US cop show in the 90s, and I think pretty much when British TV started going right through the night, they put on everything that was, I, I guess, I can imagine them saying this is second tier. It's not stuff that's not going to play in peak time. And there was a cop show called Hardball, which starred Richard Tyson and... Uh, John Ashton from the uh, Beverly Hills Cop movies, the sort of ginger guy. Oh, okay, guy. yeah. And yeah, it was the idea of the young and the old guy and the sort of different... Um, Mismatched. Mis- yeah, it's a crazy new uh, formula in cops. <laughs> uh, you know, they hate each other, but they kind of have a grudging respect. But I knew him from that, so again... He- Sounds like kindergarten cop, actually. <laughs> He's got a little ginger female partner, uh, Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Well, at least, oh, wow! Really? <laughs> yeah, it does. Like the woman. The way you describe it, a little ginger partner. <laughs> Lovely, Jimmy Cranky or something. <laughs> but yeah, no. Getting back, that was a problem for me. Is I found the bully a more appealing character. I related to the idea of this guy who just wanted to be left alone and get on with it, rather than this kind of. He was a little irritating, wasn't he? Or no, I, I didn't find him irritating at all. He was. He's there to open the shop, which is an exotic feature if you're in Britain. I don't. I've never been to a school which had a stationary store within it. I'm not familiar with the idea of going to school and <laughs> going to school and there being a stationary store, or indeed on-campus security. Oh yeah, no, I I, I know that's. That is a fact. Definitely. Right, because uh, it does it does create... Especially a, in Mitch Pileggi. <laughs> <laughs> it does create this odd little world, and I wasn't sure if touches like that were, you know, a hyper-real kind of thing to it's try. It's the 80s, man. <laughs> the whole decade was hyper-real. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Cause yeah, no, I do know. You know, the whole setup of the film is um, Jerry trying to get off campus and his, his efforts being thwarted, or trying to cause some kind of distraction that can stop everything, fire alarms... Uh, yeah, uh, I love that. I love that the, the little sort of you know you need these little setups. You know, on the last show we were talking about uh, Sir Henry at Rollington, and it was just a series of skits that had nothing connecting mm-hmm. them. At least this is kind of similar. There's sketches. There's um, oh, it there's has things a... connecting it all, and that, that's just really pleasing for me. I, oh I no, it this great. this definitely is a a much better film than that it tells a good story <laughs> mm. it's just I don't feel there's enough there's such a, a lack of balance between 
the effort that's gone into making it look good and actually what it's got to say. Yeah, Although I appreciate it's a completely light comedy. And yeah, I mean, I don't think it's... But I think it's difficult to see this in isolation without... I mean, I'm no real fan of the John Hughes movies. I'm not very keen on the message they tend to push, which uh, Be- Breakfast Club, which I know a lot of people love, seems to me to say everyone's got their own place that they're meant to fit into. <laughs> Uh, Ferris Bueller, I'm sure, is a sort of peculiar uh, Ayn Rand kind of strand of uh, it, doing your own thing and yeah, no, it's not giving a, a damn about anyone else. Yeah, but it's, that's a, you know, it captures the decade. But there are they're kind of anomalies as well. I mean, they they're just they're bloody fun. entertaining. They're fun movies. Like, they are yeah. very fun, and they they become part of my nostalgia. What um, did you think, like Big Tangerine Dream fan of the soundtrack? Um, not a great deal, I've got to say. It's um, weak. It's weak, and I think at certain points it's playing directly on their stuff from Risky Business. I'm sure they were dragged in because they were asked to try and... They were still paying off the synths, weren't they? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> uh, the few really identifiable tunes that they do sound exactly like Love on a Real Train from Risky Business. The rest of it seemed to be almost be textures they're just kind of a, a guitar squealing or something it was filler wasn't it yeah I it was it sounded and they sounded like outtakes from another movie they did around the same time near dark which i'm sure you're familiar oh, with oh yeah i love near yeah. dark but um, yeah um a lot of the soundtrack here is quite a lively kind of pop tunes aren't they they sound a bit like the rembrandt who did the thre- the friends theme tune or uh, sound better than that <laughs> <laughs> anything's better than that you know they're quite jaunty <laughs> yeah yeah, little odd beat numbers. Yeah, I think anyone who's a similar age to me, so like early thirties, will really appreciate something like if you're if you're a fan of Bueller or like throwaway eighties comedies, but with some very distinctive visual flair. I mean, I, I even made a note. I said it's like Evil Dead Two. There's that much weird camera trickery going on. Like within the yeah. first two minutes of the film, I was like. Yeah, there's a wow. lot of you know. <laughs> is it called speed ramp editing when they've kind of done a a, a tracking shot, but then spot oh, going up? really quick? Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that. So the whole thing is you know a cliched word, but kinetic. Um, mm. But that does you know. I mean, it sounds like I've got a downer on this film. I do really oh, enjoy right. it, but I just think there's there's a better film in there. And mm. um, yeah, Sonnenfeld's. Um, photography in this I think is, is fantastic and yeah. it does create it, it gets you into even it's though no one wants to be beaten up by a bully I think it does ramp it up so that's a much bigger deal than it actually would be it really, you get the expectation he's actually going to get killed yeah because it's, it's very cleverly done because you know you have these sort of edited bits where he attends his English class and he's got this like old woman who's reciting the Iliad oh, about yeah, with um, some relish Achilles yeah. like absolutely fucking uh, Hector, Hector up and then it, it cuts to him like running to the toilet and there's an overhead shot of him like puking into the toilet and then the camera comes down and it opens and it, yeah it just works for me I mean I find it really captivating yeah but then there's, there's great bits like that because you're the one who's going to a science class and it's something about some in, insect oh yeah no, is the, it? Prey, the, the prey scorpion who eats the yeah. cricket or something, yeah isn't it? wonderfully done but yes just really makes it so um, so immediate <laughs> Um, what did you think of the rest of the cast? Well, I've I mentioned briefly before, Mitch Pileggi is the Duker, the uh, the security guy who's like Skinner from the X Files, and he was the main uh, guy in Shocker. All right, yeah. A- aptly named film, it pretty much describes what it is. Not good. 
It's fucking That's terrible. about a guy who gets sort of electrocuted and appears in television sets. If yeah, I've becomes, not seen it. But. It becomes electric, man. <laughs> it's <laughs> bloody awful. But yeah, a few other people to note here. John P. Ryan, who we did mention yep. briefly last time. I think he's great. Uh, are you a fan of Larry Sanders? No, it's passed me by, oh. actually. Um, it, well, it's not passed me by. I've passed it by. Okay. <laughs> well, Arrested always... Development, though. Oh, yeah. See, that's the one I've never seen. Oh, but, okay. Um, oh, we should... But Larry Larry Sanders, I love Tambor in there is just one of the uh, as Hank Kingsley, this put upon sidekick who's just so brilliant. He's good at doing the put upon, isn't he? But he does it here as well. That yeah. the fact that he's such a mild character, but then we'll have these little outbursts when he can't believe that this is happening to him. Where because yeah, he's running the stationery store there, and um, he can't believe that his trust has been betrayed. And Philip Baker Hall, who crops up for sort of yeah, no good reason as a policeman, but yeah, he's known from the early um, really brief. Well, he's he's more known now for the Paul, Paul Thomas, Thomas Anderson, Anderson films. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I'm, I'm, I was very pleased to see this again. But oh, it's it, going to be uh, on, on Zeb's uh, watch list. Really, it, it's kind of like hanging around with your son. In fact, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> speed it races yeah. round with, and he's absolutely exhausted. Whoever did this should be plucked out of our school like a burgeoning cancerous growth deep inside the colon. I couldn't agree with you more, sir. Much of Orson Welles' career was spent lending his tonsils and status to wretched films and adverts so he could scrape together funds to realise his own projects. In 1965, Welles finished Chimes at Midnight, in which he compiled sections from five Shakespeare plays to make a film with the bloated, boastful coward Sir John Falstaff as the central character examining the complex buffoon and his relationship with young Prince Hal, destined to become King Henry V. Pardon me, my lord. A hue and cry have followed certain men into this house. What men? One of them is well known, my gracious lord, a gross fat man. As fat as butter! The bard equals the board. <laughs> You're not no. a big fan of the shake? No, that's not fair. Um, I don't dislike Shakespeare, but I don't love it because... It's so dense, man. Trying to un- trying to unravel that language is is pretty hardcore sometimes. And when I was studying at school with Shakespeare, I always pricked up when we'd watch one of the movies. So we watched Polanski's Macbeth, Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. All of a sudden, the language wasn't a problem when you're just reading it from a book or you're just talking about it to someone else. You know, with a con- with a visual context, it made so much more sense. And a performance as well. And a performance, mm-hmm. yeah. So turning this on last night, just in my bed before a couple of hours before I was going to go. You to sound sleep. like Barry White does the bard. <laughs> I was. Very surprised because I'd forgotten we were doing this, and then I turned it on and I was like, "Oh shit, yeah, it's that Orson Welles film about based on Shakespeare plays." And bloody hell, it was fucking amazing. Yeah, you've enjoyed this. <laughs> yeah, incredibly. Great. I was really surprised how um, affecting it was on me. Yeah, I'm, I'll let you go because I need okay, to well, like, gather no. my thoughts a little bit. <laughs> well, I'm glad you've kicked off with that. Um, Orson Welles is someone I'm really interested in. Um, Although, I I mean, I have to confront this. I'm possibly... Uh, Orson Welles is possibly someone I admire more than I actually enjoy. So, I mean, he was a big figure who... <laughs> in oh, in yeah. all sorts of ways. <laughs> but, yeah, the, the, there's a famous um, uh, arena documentary which interviews him over a course of a few hours, uh, which I saw when I was about 14, and I think that was quite a sort of pivotal moment for me when I decided to become... It was on about three weeks ago. Yeah, uh, yeah, they repeated it recently on one of the BBC channels. But I remember seeing that when I was about 14, which is exactly the age when you think, yes, I'm going to become an Adrian Mole-style <laughs> pseudo-intellectual. 
and it was brilliant because his his films, his the projects he was talking about seemed so highbrow, but he himself seemed such. Uh, I was going to say approachable, but a very lively character, wasn't he? He was someone. Uh, he had charisma. Yeah, he Beautiful. had charisma. <laughs> he, he reminds me a lot of Terry Gilliam in yeah, a lot of ways. Yeah. He was so so enthused about his films and things. However, yeah, I mean, then I watched Citizen Kane, and I think that's fantastic. Um, but beyond that, I've got to say, yeah, I admire his films more than <gasps> Touch of Evil. Touch of Evil, I'm not amazingly taken with. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, I absolutely love that. I think that's much better than Citizen Kane, even. Yeah, but um, I mean, going back to that documentary, I know Chimes at Midnight sounded great, and I loved the audacity, even though I didn't even know that word then, of taking three Shakespeare, pl- uh, five Shakespeare plays, and compressing them down and just sort of t- turning it around. Yeah. Um, editing the Bard. Editing the Bard. <laughs> and um, because it is quite a difficult film to get hold of, it's only recently been reissued as a Region 2 DVD, but it's because. Non Spanish, by the way. Non Spanish. It was only the Spanish one yeah. that was available for a long time. Yeah, but the reason for that is, as we said in the introduction, um, Orson Welles was gathering bits and pieces of funding from all over the place. And so I think there are there's a lot of. Um, there are a lot property of rival. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of property problems with uh, who owns this. So, yeah, whew, in a roundabout way. This is the first time I've actually seen this. Um, and yeah, this ties in absolutely with what you were saying about Shakespeare in general. There's there's little doubt for me he was a great storyteller, but I like the idea Shakespeare was a very popular um, dramatist. Mm. I, think, I remember someone saying he was the Neil Simon of his day. So, uh, <laughs> um, so I've never liked that idea that it's something that should be um, revered and you know wrapped in cotton wool and or, no, sorry, put on a pedestal. However, as you say, the language can be quite difficult to tackle just because it's so just several hundred years ago now. It's difficult for us to get a handle on that. It's like trying to read Chaucer, isn't it? Yeah. You know, there's a good story in there. It's just yeah. translating it. But they've got the vowels all wrong. <laughs> um, so, yeah, when I sat down to watch this the other night, I did think of cheating and pausing it after a few minutes, going onto Wikipedia and reading the plots of, you know, <laughs> oh the plot God. of the film. But I thought... No, it has to stand or fall on what the film itself yeah, is. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah, I've rambled on for a few minutes about this. But the point is, I did have trouble actually following what was going on from scene to scene here. I got the broad sweep of it. But mm. I think because the performances were kind of traditional, that there's a Stagey. received yeah, there's that received way of doing Shakespeare with booming kind of delivery. Um, it's telling that John Gielgud is here as Henry IV. Yeah. But, you know, something odd happened the other day. Um, at the moment in London, David Tennant and Catherine Tate are doing a production of Doctor Much Ado <laughs> of Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah, they're very popular British Doctor TV Who about stars. Nothing. Doctor, Who are, <laughs> Doctor Who is about nothing now, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they're popular British TV stars. But they just played a little clip of that. And I know it's possibly a bit unfair because Much Ado is um, a comedy, it's it's a lot broader. But just listening to that little extract, even though it was the same kind of very um, arcane, la- archaic language, you got the gist of what was happening because of their delivery, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas this, I was a little bit at a loss to know what was happening from scene to scene. I mean, did you find that? Uh, at times, but for me, this visually, there was a narrative. Mm. It, I knew what I knew what was going on because of what I was looking at. It, it made complete and utter sense, mm-hmm. and it really, uh, actually, the visuals punctuated every scene for me. To use the modern vernacular, they nailed it. You know, there's the whole um, monologue of Gilgud with the the sleep, 
Yeah. Is it soliloquy? Is that the soliloquy right if they're addressing the audience with their sort of internal thoughts? Which he, which he is, isn't he? Mm-hmm. And there's just this shadow over his eyes that sometimes he nods forward and comes back out. It's quite a close-up of his face as well. I was really paying attention to what he was saying and I was getting... I was grasping it to some degree. But what I was looking at made more sense than what I was hearing. The story is being told with the visuals, which yeah, is yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing, obviously. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree there. The, the visuals in this are fantastic, and I think that's more... That's definitely what I was impressed with. And yeah. that, it's kind of maybe I arrogantly assume this is what its reputation rests on, is the fact that the photography is great, the lighting is great. But also... Um, it was, again, we've just said this about three o'clock high, but kinetic. I mean, given this was made in the mid-60s, the camera seems to be roving all the time. And it put me much more in mind of the way cop shows have probably been done on TV since the mid-90s. And mm. I don't mean that as a facetious point. I mean, it did make you feel... There is that problem with Shakespeare if it seems distant and, like I say, on a pedestal. As well, that's the other thing. Like he's doing this, not just one Shakespeare play, he's condensing five into one and he's filming them in a foreign country and shifting the focus of the to take this yeah, supporting character and making him the center of it it I is like brass balls like to do something like that and he does it with sort of vigor it's it's awesome like it's it's inspired it's awesome <laughs> <laughs> i mean going back to the point i raised did you find the performances in this did i mean you kind of answered this but could you could get past them because of the visuals yeah. do you wish that maybe people had taken a different approach to their delivery no, um, no, no. I don't. Mm. For me, it was fine. I, I think because I mean, this brings me on to the next point, which is why Wells chose this. And there's, I mean, as as good as the film is, there's a sneaking suspicion that in Falstaff he kind of saw a himself. version of himself. Yes, yeah. um, and obviously, if you're an actor, it, it, there's something very appealing about playing this exaggerated, grotesque figure, which he is here. I'm sure there is some padding going on, but um, I mean physical body, not uh, script-wise. Yeah, Additional no, no, dialogue yeah, or something. Because he is enormous. Yeah, but he's is that Mr. Creosote? Yeah. Um, <laughs> interestingly, Orson Welles judged uh, that it can actually Monty <laughs> Python's meaning of life. Was it a thumbs up or a thumbs yeah, up? Yeah, he, he gave it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was on the judging panel. I think he liked it. But uh, um, I'm wondering to what extent Wells made this because he wanted the chance to do this show, a grandstanding kind of. But he'd been doing this for years on stage, hadn't he? And it flopped, and then he, they tried to do it again in France, I think. Mm-hmm. And he had a history of it. So, yeah, I can see it's probably a, a potential pedestal mm. for but, it. Um, but getting past how impressed you are with the visuals do you think mm. it was a worthwhile project to do of putting Falstaff as a central character because I I yeah. mean this goes back to me saying I wasn't following the dialogue from line to line particularly Yeah. the central relationship here is Falstaff this over the top buffoon and something of a wastrel and Prince Hal who's kind of enjoying hanging out with him but as soon as he becomes king you know snap he, he takes on the responsibility and the mantle and you know, to paraphrase, puts away childish things. Um, do you think that was a good enough story to support this? No, I think, to be honest, Falstaff the character is is kind of a foil for Hal, and the story should probably have been more about Henry, which, well, it is in Shakespeare, you know. Yeah. He's based on the Henry plays, but... Um, but, yeah, no, fuck it, why not? You know, he's done it. Um, I'm quite happy to go with that. It, it didn't... 
it didn't detract too much. I, there were moments where scenes were built around having Falstaff as a central character that felt like Wells was probably saying, you know, oh wait, this film's about me, isn't it? Because some of the most striking scenes are not with Falstaff. But then you have these few moments where, uh, you know, they're taking the piss out of him. Yeah, to uh, his Howland. face and behind yeah. his back as well. and As well. But there's one, like, without giving too much away, he's been sort of <laughs> spurned. Spoilers on uh, Shakespeare. Yeah, he's been spurned. But there's a scene where he's in the castle or in the castle grounds and it's lit very in a sort of German expressionist kind of way. And it, I just had a massive like flash of uh, crack light, starrily crack light oh, from yes. Elliot of an Architect. Yeah. So, you know, said a massive Dennis. flash of crack. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like, wow, you know, there was something very visual about this big chap who's been uh, oh, like yeah. a big, huge guy throughout the film, bumbling, but a huge character who's suddenly very small and, mm. you know, is been diminished by the power surrounding yeah, him no, I found that really powerful but again that's gone back to the imagery so maybe you have got a point about um, yeah no I think again I don't want to sound frivolous when I say this but I was thinking watching this you know I do think that's a good it's a good story to tell is the one of the the character who thinks is this important figure in this boy's life but then is spurned you know and I don't think that is a spoiler I think you know I think we have <laughs> yeah. a moratorium on spoilers for stuff that's over that's 400, 400 years, years. <laughs> you know? Four, um, years? but you know like I say I don't want to sound frivolous but I was thinking I'm sure George Lucas must be familiar with this film <laughs> if he was that intent on doing Jar Jar Binks maybe he should have made him a little closer to Falstaff in this movie <laughs> No, seriously, I think the prequels would have worked better if Jar Jar and Anakin had had that kind of relationship and then there'd been a scene where Anakin had said, you know, well, you know... I'm as, as opposed to spurning... Um, <laughs> Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman, yeah, the black yes. swan. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said for that because the, when a... Ca- like we've said in uh, other podcasts, you know, comedy is... Um, it's a good weapon if you have a good, uh, proper point to yeah, make. Yeah, and... What better weapon than a buffoon of like Falstaff? You know? Yeah, who's just it's great. And I mean, Wells doesn't even say anything, does it? It's just those tears in his eyes, but that kind of half smile on his face, as if he's saying, "I understand you're doing the right thing by ignoring me now, but mm. I'm absolutely broken." Yeah. As a result of it, um, I mean, a few other things I wanted to say about it. Uh, Jean Moreau crops up here as Doltaire Sheet, this prostitute. Um, she looks so much like a young Monica Bellucci. Mm. She's quite a hottie. I've, yeah. I've been watching her films, like from her early films, right up. But she's been acting for so long. Yeah, I mean, I think I was this bef- this was before around the time of Jules Legime? Oh, it must be before, just yeah. before, I think. But, um, I mean, she's great in it. And going back to what I was saying about the received idea of how you perform Shakespeare, she really stands out for me because she seemed a much more solid character. She seemed to be responding and acting like a real person. And some real personality came out there. Sadly, I've been unprofessional again, and I've not noted down who played Prince Hal in it. Is it Keith Baxter? That sounds right. I suppose it's inevitable when you're going to be literally overshadowed by Orson Welles, but he doesn't come across as a particularly notable performance or character even. Not really. It doesn't... I'd rather have seen... Forget the chap who played uh, Henry Percy. I think he would have been a better Hal. Mm. He's a nemesis. Was it Worcester's nephew? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Worcester was played by Fernando Ray, who yeah, was in French Connection, French Connection yeah. and 
Enzo Castellari's Mosaic Connection, <laughs> which I recommend everyone to watch because <laughs> I watched it recently. It's really oh, good. Oh, should we cover it on the show? Uh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Like I said, George Lucas must have seen this. However, uh, I think Spielberg's on record as saying the Battle of Shrewsbury in this was an inspiration uh, for... Um, Saving Private Ryan. Shaving Ryan's Privates. <laughs> and uh, Brave Fight. <laughs> yeah. As well, apparently. Battle uh, of Culloden. So, yeah, this... Yeah, um, this that was a scene that was infamous, so I was looking forward to seeing that. It uh, was effing hardcore. Yeah. You, you, it worked for you? Christ, yeah. The thing that reminded me of was Terry Gilliam very much. I mean, not the battle, but the preceding, the build-up to it when you had these knights on these incredibly complex winches because their armour was so heavy, being um, winched up into the tree branches and then lowered onto... uh, I think Python were getting towards that, and I think Gilliam... Gilliam and Jones, I suppose, as well, because they're both very big on the mechanics of medieval world. And history as well, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, They sort of... They tap into that vein of like, well, you know, look at the reality of what it was like. Mm. But that that battle was extraordinary. I mean, it was it was nearly ten minutes, I yeah. think, of just solid and butchery. It, and it does, yeah, two things at once. There, it is very unflinching, and um, it really Kinetic. conveys that idea. <laughs> really conveys that idea of you know, even lifting a sword would be pretty impossible in that kind of situation. But do it in some mud. <laughs> do it in some mud so it's a yeah there's no romance to it at all but then you do have I think it was um, Wells again in one of these interviews saying he's this very comical figure in it who's running around like a little tin can yeah, yeah. isn't he so there, it's funny but also horrifying as well at the same time I mean that's yeah worth watching if just for that but there are, and comedy yeah but there's 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 plenty of other stuff to recommend about this I mean so I don't want to sound like I've got a downer on it it's just I think my main my only problems with it were I would love to have actually followed it from line to line and I'm not even though I've I have studied a fair bit of Shakespeare at school and uh, university I never did the history so I'm not familiar with these plays I would love to watch this again quite soon I think oh, Harry thou must rob me of my youth Hunting sea life on the ocean waves is a specialised line of work But Captain Richard Harris doesn't seem to realise that he's up to his waders in trouble when he captures and kills a pregnant mate of Orca, the killer whale. Happily, marine biologist Charlotte Rampling is on hand to warn that the obsessed mammal will now stop at nothing to take its revenge, planning ingenious ways to consign the Harris and shipmates Will Sampson, Keenan Wynn, Robert Carradine and Bo Derrick to Davy Jones' locker. And this is the brain of a killer whale. We know very little about the nature of the whale's intelligence, except that it exists and is powerful, and in some respects may even be superior to man. I remember this coming out, I'm just about old enough to remember this coming out, and it was um, you know, quite a big deal. I also remember seeing it on TV, I think his first showing, it was on a Sunday night, and you know, it's got a good cast. Um, my memory of seeing it was that it was a kind of a quality product, and it was surprisingly gruesome as well. I'm, I'm guessing this is the first time you've seen it. Oh, it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that it be. Um, the other night, I was looking forward to watching it, and I had a bit of a ropey day for various reasons, but it concluded... Um, we've had some really nice weather in London, haven't we? And then it was absolutely torrential downpours of rain. Yeah, that's what I've been Thursday. working in. <laughs> <laughs> Get an office job. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> But yeah, I got home and I did something I rarely do. I ordered a pizza. I sat down for Orca the Killer Whale. You're blubber. also a winner here. I didn't order the blubber deep pan. <laughs> um, 
but no, it, it, it's got an air of a, a takeout pizza kind of a movie. I can imagine watching this at a drive-in. Um, yeah, just to me, I just thought it was like a straight-up exploitation uh, rip-off of Jaws. There's no getting away from the Jaws connection, is that it definitely is uh, Dino De Laurentiis, who's pretty famous for that kind of thing. And I was looking through Dino's filmography, and there seemed to be an awful lot of... Um, that was a hit. If I combine that with these few star names and a lot of throw a lot of money at it, he was usually uh, doing his own version of films which uh, probably not had big budgets to begin with. But he thought, ah, if I put more money in, box office dynamite. Oh, so uh, <laughs> what did you make of this? It was terrible, <laughs> but in all the right ways. <laughs> wow, that's no. I'm pleased you say that. Oh, um, it was great. Because it's by no means a good film, is it? Not on any level, really. Oh uh, well, there I, are some good no, things. Yeah, about the, the, it. there's definitely some plus points. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, overall, the it, orca it fails terribly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it was mauled by critics when it came out. More than likely, and yeah. by the audiences. I think the box office numbers were I think that's exactly what the with a decimal point <laughs> yeah. a waterlogged flopper room <laughs> it was great I was expecting it to be like that to be honest um, I mean Richard Harris I'm not going to turn the Harris down he is superb Charlotte Rampling I've always had a thing for her uh, Keenan Wynn Robert Carradine I, I saw them recently in a film together uh, Wynn and Carradine they were in Wavelength Oh, the yeah, uh, yeah, another Tangerine Dream soundtrack I'm yeah. familiar with, but I've never seen the film. That's well, about, I've got it on video if you want to watch. Yeah, it. definitely, it's about little aliens by the looks <laughs> of the. Uh, I remember the sleeve had these kind of could that be shaven-headed the, the uh, Bergman, the German, and the yeah. uh, little alien, the, li the little aliens. <laughs> um, so it sounds like you enjoyed it. I did. I re I really enjoyed it. It was. The gripes I had with it were unnecessary gripes that I only picked up on because I'm reviewing it. Yeah, you've got a critical eye. Yeah, usually them. I just be like, I don't care about that. But I just have to say the science in this is absolute <laughs> hokum. And how the hell does Charlotte Rampling have such an affinity with these whales? Well, this, oh, <laughs> I love, um, oh, that's beautiful. It's the film, I mean, it's got a very basic setup. Uh, Harris captures and kills the pregnant mate of Orca. Orca goes bananas when he finds out about this. I well, mean, he's he does see it. his like yeah. unborn child pop out of his um, mother's, uh, his wife's he's, belly. He's, <laughs> his mother's womb that would have been a strange Oedipal whale what's going on um, before that happens yeah there's a brief um, there's a brief meeting between uh, Harris and Charlotte Rampling who's uh, in scuba gear although very tellingly it opens with a way um, sorry with a shark causing some trouble but then the whale sees it off as if to say you thought Jaws was a big deal yeah Wait till you get a load of this whale. Have <laughs> a load of this, yeah, because like Ken, uh, Robert Carradine's character, is bizarrely manages to fall out of a dinghy for no <laughs> for no apparent reason. That was his set piece. He yeah. did it at parties all around Hollywood. But, like this is a guy who's in like Revenge of the Nerds. Like he's more famous for that, I think. <laughs> and he can barely fall into the water with uh, with some vim and vigor. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that scene happens at the beginning with the shark and the whale and Charlotte Rampling immediately, possibly while she's still in the water, I, I can't remember, but informs Captain Richard Harris. Nolan. Nolan. What's going on? Oh, it's a whale. It does this and this. You think, yeah. well, come on, he'd know this, wouldn't he? Surely. Big horror, he would. 
Oh yes, very caricatured <laughs> Irish sailor. Um, but then it. Um, but then we get this wonderful scene with uh, Charlotte Rampling delivering this lecture to her students, which looks like a fairly broad introduction to um, killer whales. Yeah. Although rather like uh, whenever Q gives gadgets to James Bond, it it. Uh, it relates directly to anything that's going to happen in the next hour and a half and nothing else. <laughs> Absolutely, so uh, You'd yeah. have thought she'd be talking about killer whales. Uh, this is the sort of size they can grow to, their lifespan, uh, gestation period, <laughs> whereabouts they hang out. But it's like, they make great parents. They're very loyal. They have an amazing capacity for revenge. And this is exactly what their fetuses look Profound like. Profound instinct for violence. <laughs> <laughs> that's what she it's says. Lovely. And, um... <laughs> It's, it's a special. I don't want to knock uh, Charlotte Rampling, but the fact that hey she, man, has she that, got paid for it. <laughs> she did, but the fact that she's famous for this kind of deep set eyes and deadpan expression, the fact she's delivering this, and you can't help thinking what's going on behind the eyes. Uh, yeah, the sound of the check uh, yeah. going into a well, that account. whale song probably. <laughs> whale song, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I just stuff like that. I was uh, I I had a big smile on my face. But throughout it, it has a problem with that. Um, Charlotte Rampling at several points does a little bit of narration, which is totally unnecessary. It's, it's superfluous. To it's too fake to the nth degree. I mean, it just comes out of nowhere, and you're like, why? Well, what's this here for? I really don't understand why that's yeah, there. She'll sit there and say, Is uh, it? we set off and it was uh, my own fault for putting romantic notions into Captain Nolan's head about the revenge of uh, a killer whale. I think, it, well, <laughs> what? This is the big problem with Charlotte Rampling's character. She's so inconsistent in it. She yeah, starts off she, haranguing him and then by the end she's sort of hanging out with him for no well, good reason. No, 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 but she starts off like haranguing... Well, it starts off with her. We only see her first. Like When she's swimming underwater, she's going to be attacked by this shark and then... It goes on, and then there's a voiceover about how I could be quite attracted to this man. You know, she describes him as a buffoon and an idiot, or whatever. And you're like, and he is. all right, yeah. He's not like yeah. Han Solo like with an arrogance. No, even that would have something to a sort of raw sexuality. But Richard Harris just seems like some. Uh, he should I don't be know in the spoons. Yeah, well, I'm sure he was not long after this. There is, there is a probably an urban myth about Richard Harris picking up some girl at. Um, in a pub and saying, "Oh, you know, you know, I'm this famous actor," and he took her to see a play and then realised he was meant to be on stage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's rubbish, but it kind of uh, <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> but yeah, thing. like yeah, complete inconsistency with her relationship with Nolan uh, Harris's character. That just, I mean, what's going on with them? With uh, like, she kind of likes him, and then he's like playing hard yeah. to get with I mean, her, and that's, vice versa. <laughs> obviously, that's an older like, that's an old idea, and yeah, indeed, goes back to Shakespeare at least of the antagonism that flourishes into something else but there's nothing there to back it up no. he's, he's, he's an arse uh, it's not just like he's an arrogant no, he... arsehole he's, he's absolutely against everything she stands for and he's an idiot you know it's not like he's got an, a new way of doing things he's just a, he's, he's, I think he was actually described in one review as a bounty hunter <laughs> I think this whale's got a price on his head but yeah he's, <laughs> a, he's there to get the whale to put it in um an aquarium, you know, one of these water. Yeah, because he gets like a thousand dollars every twenty feet or something. But yeah, throughout it with the script, there's a sense that characters have to keep delivering information to the audience so they know what the whale's capable of. And if it's not Charlotte Rampling, it's Bo Derek who, uh, you know, is a, cr a crew member, or is she just the girlfriend of one of the crew member? 
Oh, she's a crew member. She's a I fully think paid when you're on the boat, you've yeah. got to be part of the crew. But she seems to be sitting there reading books and quoting things about, oh, this is, you know. Well, there is one point where they're just about to go out and get it. He's like, Captain, do you think this is the right thing to do? To separate the mother from. It's like, if you're questioning it, why yeah. be there? <laughs> yeah, they're a really ramshackle crew, aren't they? Oh, they're. they're uh, you've got the uh, her boyfriend is just. is kind of a. Richard Dreyfus light. Well, I think he's more like I don't know if you've seen the remake of King Kong that Dino did. Yeah, yeah. The year before, but Jeff Bridges secretly like. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> up to you, you know. But Jeff Bridges in that again is the kind of hippie character. They all look like sort of Lindsay Buckingham did in Fleetwood Mac around this kind of Catching era. Catching the zeitgeist. That's. That was the biggest problem I had, probably, was how poorly they conveyed information in it. I think it's just that idea that audiences are idiots and you have to spoon feed them. So we did say, I mean, we've, we've, we've kicked this a little bit. There are a lot of good things in it, though. I mean, I think the acting is pretty good. Um, and as much as I've slagged off the script, I think they do a good job, actually, with Richard Harris's character, in that initially there's nothing to like about him. And, yeah, he kills um, orcas. We're going to call the whale Orca, as if that's his actual Could name. Could call him Oscar. Oscar. Oscar the killer whale. Yeah. Um, he kills Orca's mate. Oscar. Oscar's mate. Um, oh, Olivia. <laughs> Harris kills Olivia. Oscar gets pissed off. And yeah. little Oliver He's falls out. furious. <laughs> yeah. He is. Um, I just think, well, there's no reason to like this guy. But then they do try and give him a slightly sympathetic air. But also you a like sense... That? I thought that no, was no, a No, 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 I don't... Um, I think it was necessary to do that. Um, really? So you I, don't just hate the guy. Yeah, but I thought he was... I, I really all, thought they were. I thought he was more going to be like the Ahab character. Whereas, if anyone, Orca's the Ahab character. Well, He's quite, the one yeah, with the there's something that's sort obsession. of flipped. Yeah. There. And I thought that was going to be the case with um, Harris just turns into this mad obsessive. But mm-hmm. no, yeah. Whereas, no, he Which doesn't quite, want anything to do with it, does he? It's great, though. Like, so and I, uh, I actually like that about it. The fact mm. that he went from just, this was a gig for me, I was going to get some money, uh, don't, don't talk nonsense, this whale can't be after me. And then he realises how out of his depth he is. And uh, did all his own stunts? Really? Nearly died? Really? A couple of times? Yeah. Well, gosh, you've read yeah. up on it a bit more than yeah. I have. <laughs> I was intrigued by it. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, yeah, there is some good. Um, I'm not sure what to call it action, but peril, I suppose, in it. It's um, definitely. Yeah, yeah that would get a 12A rating nowadays. <laughs> yeah. But no, I think they do a fairly decent job there of making you think. Actually, I don't, all right, this guy's awful, but. I can appreciate the idea of getting into a situation and not realising what you'd you'd bitten off. Um, as does Orca. Um, and, you know, it's an inevitable thing. But another good point about it, uh, well, for me anyway, Ennio Morricone's score? Didn't really like it. Really? I thought it was kind of like Tangerine Dream for uh, 3 o'clock high. I thought <laughs> it was pretty weak. It didn't really suit the action and non-action just seemed overly melodramatic it was always playing on the whales side of things like that's that's how Ennio did the score he got some whales and played on them <laughs> not my cup of tea at all um oh, all the right. things i really enjoyed about the film was yet yeah, the whales animatronics the footage that they filmed in i think san francisco mm. in a little caved yeah. off because uh, that is pretty seamless isn't it it's really good uh, i mean it's obvious but it's 
it works. Because well, I was going through this assuming there must be uh, animatronics, but I couldn't really spot where they were, or I couldn't distinguish uh, what was... The dead ones were... Uh, well, yeah, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, to talk about splicing the film in, there's a, I don't know if you remember this, because I know you were a bit tired when you were watching it. One of the first scenes in it is this shot of the ocean and it's kind of like a black sea with this wonderful sunset and then the two whales coming out almost in symmetry it's probably yeah. the same whale with a reverse shot or yeah, something it is, yeah. and uh and yeah doing a little um dive that's great <laughs> and it looks it looks totally artificial but beautiful and the thing it reminded me of was uh kind of nick rogue's work on man who fell to earth it was one of those kind okay, of strange yeah. little dreamy oh, kind of sequences I thought wow this is going to be a real quality product yeah. <laughs> oh, poor then Jim. Richard Harris appeared <laughs> I really loved the way the whale was taunting Harris you know he'd like wave its tail at him sometimes or flash his yeah. flipper or he'd always jump out of the water after he'd just killed one of his friends I and I was like yeah that's I good. didn't mind that so much although yes he does look like he's lurking around and saying yeah I got you I got your number but yeah yeah the, bits, the, eye, um, the eye that was the bit I didn't mm-hmm. like because I was looking at this and thinking how great it was I think one of the genius things about Geiger's design for Alien is that it doesn't have eyes yeah and obviously the killer whales do have eyes but they're not obvious are they because they're no, kind of no. disguised in the this black head that they have so, but you do get lots of shots of um, Orca's eye, and it's there's almost like a flash, isn't there? As if his uh, to very visually represent that his he's uh, memorised what Harris oh, yeah, looks like. like. Yeah, there's like there's almost literally a camera flash sound. I'm yeah. pretty sure. And then there's an imprint of uh, yeah. Harris, Richard Harris's hairstyle, circa <laughs> 1977. <Kinsky> style. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but Enyo didn't work for you. Oh, not at all. And the the closing song. Yeah, the the main theme throughout it then gets lyrics at the end, but they're in this operatic. There weren't pleasant vocals to listen to, but also the fact that, was it My Love We Are One? And I remember the Golden Turkey Awards mocking this and saying, is this Harris and Orca singing some strange uh, ballad to each other? There's rambling in Orca, isn't there? Who knows? So yeah, notorious for being something of a Jaws rip-off. And yeah, it does have some uh, gory action going on in it. how did that work for you? Well, I, th- I thought the whale uh, violence, was <laughs> the whale abortion, the violence to whales was, uh, yeah, it was quite. Wow, you're uh, staring off with a kind of thousand yeah. yard uh, stare now. And not hardcore, but it, <laughs> it was unnecessary. It's not every day you see you. Uh, well, I suppose it was. A it's bit an like abortion from a height, though, because it like flops down. That's to the, the worst deck. kind of abortion. It's like, <laughs> and, and then, then get Har- it off my boat. And then Harris hoses it off. Yeah. He just gets the hose pipe um, Get it off my boat. Yeah, I guess in some ways it wasn't so uh, distant from Cutthroat's Nine when the violence but, is stuff that you maybe need for the plot, but you don't need it to be done with that. Uh, but only earlier, with um, in the introduction, like Charlotte Rampling had been lecturing students on how similar the fetuses of uh, look, its fins are. even look like yeah. fingers. <laughs> yeah, look. Human, Ten minutes later, human feet are not. Like, oh my god! Oh wow. I suppose the point I really want to raise about this, as much as I'm mocking it, it did move along at a hell of a lick. It's only about a, an hour and a half, but there was no point here when I was... 128.39. Okay. <laughs> there was no point when I was bored. And I did, you know, for all of the mocking I've given it, I did kind of enjoy it. I could imagine watching it again at some point, possibly with friends in a beer, a couple of beers. And uh, North Sea Hijack. I think it'd be having a little, yeah, a little horror with a 70s bit of nautical. Yeah, yeah, I think they'd go well together. No, I can see why it was lambasted back in the day, but Mm. I think it's a perfectly uh, 
perfectly good. Yeah, it's an action movie. It is an action movie. A lot of stuff goes on. I don't know what this creature wants. You don't know what he wants. The villagers don't know. Nobody knows. But if he's anything like a human being, whatever he wants isn't necessarily what he should have. Okay, that wraps it up for show nine, um, and a very exciting moment for us because we've been asking for feedback, and we've actually got our first voicemail from one of our listeners in Newfoundland, Willie. Um, Willie, apparently, yes. Let's uh, let's just crack this on and have a little listen. Well, he says, don't do anything as obvious as playing Richard Harris singing MacArthur Park at the end of your podcast. So, um, yeah, we'll take that on board. If, if you want to send us uh, any kind of feedback or voicemails... Please do. Please do. Well, keep up with us. Um, our website's midnight-video.com. Get us via email. Midnightvideo uh, at hotmail.co.uk, because we're based in the UK. Indeed. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Midnight Video, or uh, we've got oh, Facebook Empire is uh, mushrooming. Yeah, it is like a little petit champignon. I assume that's complimentary. Aye, aye, Captain. <laughs> Adios. That hour, ladies and gentlemen, is over. For the past 17 minutes, I've been lying my head off.